Hello, I'm Smitha Tharoor and welcome to Stories of Unconscious Bias, a podcast where I ask guests from around the world to share their story and to reflect on their life experiences with unconscious bias. I hope you enjoy listening. They were recorded globally under COVID-19 lockdown conditions. Welcome back, Anthony. We entered the last episode asking you about your story with regards to finding Shamima Begum in Syria. Now, we know that story, so you don't need to expand on that. But I was wondering whether you could perhaps, on reflection, if at all you had any positive or negative unconscious biases, when you met Shamima Begum uh, and you broke the story of her being there. And for listeners, for those of us who are, are, are not aware, perhaps there's a small percentage of people who don't know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, perhaps you can just very briefly remind all of us who she is and, and how you found her. I'd really appreciate that. Uh, of course. So first of all, the background to Shamima's Begum story. Shamima Begum left London, absconded from, from her school and, and from her family in Bethnal Green when she was 15 years old, one of three girls to do so. And her case became very, very well known in Britain, not just because uh, the police advised her parents to go public with the case in, in the hope that the girls might be lured back from Syria where they'd gone to become part of Islamic State's caliphate, but also it struck a chord with everybody. These were three intelligent girls doing well at school uh, who had been lured to abandon this land and, and their families and, and go off and, and join Islamic State. So it was a very well-known story. Less well-known was what happened to the girls. No one knew of the girls' ultimate fate until last year, as the final sliver of the Islamic State uh, caliphate fell in a place called Baguz. Thousands and thousands of Islamic State uh, family members and, and fighters as well, foreign fighters and Iraqis and Syrians too, uh, surrendered, and the women and children ended up in a series of camps, uh, and the men ended up in a series of prisons. While in one of these camps during the fall of Baguz, trying to speak to British women, fine British women who had been part of the caliphate, ISIS, uh, Islamic State members, or uh, family members, I found Shamima Begum. There was intent there, but there was also a lot of coincidence and chance and luck in, in finding her. By that stage, she's 19 years old. And it was the first of three interviews across seven months I've had with her. Um, now, may I also add, as time's gone by, you know, other journalists have seen her. And if you ask different people, they've got a different take on Shamima Begum and her, her case. If you ask her lawyers, they'll say one thing. And if you ask people in the street, they'll say another thing. And if you ask the security services, they'll say something else. And if you ask Shamima herself, she might say something slightly different now than how she did at the beginning. But what marked that first meeting that I had with her, which was several days before anyone else spoke to her, was that the perimeter of the arena for everything that's happened since her losing her citizenship and, and all the rest of it wasn't drawn out. So there was a degree of naturalness and a, a lack of anything contrived in that first interview. And... We have, whether we like it or not, some sort of relationship of communication out of that first finding an interview. So I, I think I have quite a good understanding 
of what she's about. Certainly not perfect, but um, I feel my own opinions, not just from meeting her, but also in, in years and years of met jihadis, spoken with jihadis, met many jihadi wives and families and having been involved with wars, many, many wars where, where Islam or fundamentalist Islam is involved, that I, that I have some, some grasp and understanding of, of these issues. But this, nevertheless, became one of the most toxic, I can't think of a more toxic story to be involved in. Of course, I would have had uh, conscious bias in meeting Shamima Begum, because she was part of the caliphate. She had gone over there knowingly. She had married an Islamic State fighter. She had become part of the caliphate. Now, the caliphate to me is not just a neutral subject. The caliphate is, was a structure that had overseen the kidnapping of friends and the murder of friends. I mean, I know people directly who were beheaded by Islamic State. Um, not to mention that the, the impression of of, of pain and suffering and subjugation that I have in my mind from speaking to literally hundreds and hundreds of Iraqis and Syrians who, who labored under the life of the caliphate. So when I'm speaking to Shamima Begum, I am feeling slightly hostile <laughs> to begin with, right? Because I'm trying to strike, you know, a, a central stance of, of common sense. And I respect when I'm in an interview with anybody that we have an arena of, you know, I'm not going to say I despise the organization for what you're worth, uh, for whom you're working or who you are, because that's not what I'm about as a journalist. So I'm there to try to relay information as purely as possible. And that's not going to be served if I start slagging somebody off as, as I sit down. Plus, also... She's a kid. She's 19 years old, technically an adult, but she's had uh, three years of being legally a minor in Islamic State. And I'm conscious as well. Well, there's a, there's a number of things going on. She's female. She's pregnant. She's very young. And she's been through most of this caliphate experience as a minor. Now, those are four things which are also central in my mind at the same time as you willingly went and joined the caliphate. So I've got a whole lot of stuff wrestling around in my brain when I'm seeing her. And she's probably got a lot of stuff going around her brain when I'm speaking to her. But that's how it was. What I think now an awful lot of prejudice became involved in what happened next. No sooner had I come out with the first interview I did with her, which was headline, bring me home, because she wanted to come home. And now I expected Britain by and large would react to that. There would be some furore, but most people would recall that she was a schoolgirl when she left home. Here she was pregnant. It turned out that her previous two children had died as infants within the space of a few months. Uh, there she was pregnant, messed up, wanting to come home. And I assumed she would be home within weeks of my story running. Oh, no, 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 no. The country went, was ca catalyzed by rage. She had a citizenship revoked by the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, at the time. And the country just was enraged with her. Now, and, and also a lot of people enraged with me, 
in passing that I mentioned that. But but now there are a number of things here. Oh, oh and I remember I think the worst moment for me of realizing how much the focus for rage, for conscious bias and unconscious bias that she became to this society was, I think about three weeks after I found her, I'd taken her photograph. And the photograph I took, which originally had been a front page photograph, ended up being used by a gun club in the Wirral to superimpose on targets. So sort of people could pump, pump images of Shamima Begum you know, pregnant teenager, full of holes. Uh, and I remember when I heard that news, I was at home and I took a call from a friend who told me that this was happening. And I, I just remember just feeling like shit. <clears throat> that this thing I was doing, part of my job, uh, and I don't think I could have done it any other way. And, and, interviewing her I tried to express and expose both her vulnerability uh, and the complication of her position but also some of the fairly unattractive remarks she was making uh, at the time as well and I um, you know I tried rightly to incorporate all of that in the story but the reaction to that was one of bestial and brutish rage and there it was a photograph I'd taken of her being used as a target by a gun club in, in the world for people to pump full of holes. Now, <clears throat> a number of things came out of it. Um, first of all, I think it's very valid for anyone listening to this is, is that something which was pointed out to me as I tried to grapple with where all this hate had come from. Some of it was obvious. I mean, Britain, between when Shamima Begum had gone away and me finding her had suffered a, a series of heinous uh, terrorist attacks in which innocent people were slaughtered as they went about their business by Islamic radicals. You know, the, the mood of the country uh, had changed. And emotion is perfectly, well, it's not a legitimate part of war. It is a part of war. You know, people's emotion, emotions are very high. But what was pointed out to me by a friend as I was wrestling with all this horrible aftermath and uh, and bias was very interesting story of two young teenage white Austrian females who had left their homes and gone off and joined Islamic State. A story had appeared in the papers, I think about a couple of years ago, uh, that one of these girls had disappeared in the Caliphate and no one knew quite what had happened to her, one of these Austrian, white Austrian girls. And the other had allegedly been murdered by Islamic State because she had become dissatisfied with life in the Caliphate and tried to come home. As it happens, that story was bogus. She was alive. I don't think she was ever murdered. And she pitched up in a camp somewhat later on too. But, but this story was written at the time it was believed that she'd been murdered. And it was run in a, uh, a right-wing British tabloid um, with big circulation. <laughs> anyway, I looked at this story. This friend was being helpful to, to me because I was kind of, uh, you know, very uh, upset and angry and, and sort of vexed by everything that was happening in the wake of the story of Dan Oshimima. This story had run in this tabloid about the two, two white Austrian females. And all the comments beneath it were... Oh, what a shame. This story talking about how one had disappeared and the other had been killed. Oh, what a shame. What a tragedy. Oh, they were they were lured and now one is dead. And and the word shame, what a shame and what a tragedy kept on going through these readers' comments. 
well, <laughs> there weren't many comments like that beneath the story I'd written about Shamima Begum uh, because she wasn't white. You know, the race issue was big in was was huge in Shamima Begum's case. Um, I think society's reaction to that story would have been very, very different if she was a white English girl of Anglo-Saxon heritage. I still see her as an English girl, actually. But, you know, she was of Asian. She was of Bangladeshi origin. Now, that came out to play directly in her fate because her citizenship was revoked, which couldn't have happened if she was, uh, you know, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, of Anglo-Saxon heritage. But apparently because she's of Bangladeshi heritage, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you were English, but there is the option not to make you English anymore. So whatever, that was taken by the Home Secretary. But in people's reaction to her, I think it would have been very different. It would have been more similar, perhaps, to these two white teenage Austrian girls that that British readers uh, referred to with, with phrases like shame and, and tragedy. Um, now, my own unconscious bias in Shamima Begum's case, I think I've described it as best I can. There would have been you conscious have. bias from me because she had joined the caliphate. But overall, I saw her as British, female, pregnant and vulnerable. That was kind of where I was with it. And that's still where I am with it. I really appreciate this, and I'm not even going to, to react or comment on that because I think the listeners hearing your story will have their own opinions, but I wanted for you to share it because it's such a powerful story. Uh, and um, I, of course, read what you've written, and I have spoken to you many times about this, and I, and I, and I agree with you, and I, and I wanted the listeners to hear how you felt and how you thought. You, who is a white Englishman who has privileges and who happens to be in another country, <clears throat> and how you see the world based on your own personal conscious and unconscious biases. Extremely powerful, um, to, to, to which, as I said, I'm not going to add any more. But instead, Anthony, I'm going to ask you, you have had uh, in so many experiences, we could speak for many, many more hours, but I don't think we'll have the time for that. So instead, what I'd like to ask you is, could you share with the listeners any, any learning, any experiences that have taught you how to challenge your unconscious biases. Because yes, we don't have your experiences. We do not go to war and we do not meet the people you have met or experience what you have met, experienced. But we all have unconscious biases. And I'm sure that any top tips that you can give us, we would be able to put into any kind of context. So would really appreciate your thoughts on that. Um, Smither, well, first of all, I don't want to be speaking, thinking I'm on some pantheon of perfection or anything because as i say i'm also full of you know as i've tried to describe uh, uh, unconscious bias as well and and doubtless um some of it conscious too for example you know i've had quite a privileged uh upbringing in many senses uh, i was born with a, a silver spoon i was privately educated and came from a particular social bracket in england and and i noticed that for example if i was to walk into a working men's club i'd feel very awkward and uncomfortable um with with that because i would be uh not sure perhaps how to 
relate, which sounds terrible, but it's just an honesty, uh, comfortably with some of the people around me until time went by. Oddly, in wars, I find it totally easy to relate to people, I think, from across the spectrum or, or totally easy. Now, I must, I must caveat that much more easy than within the strictures of my own society. That's another conversation. May I also say that there's a humorous side to getting it wrong, I guess. Um, very quickly, to cut a long story short, a few years ago, I was taken hostage in Syria. There was an escape attempt. It was kind of the opposite of the great escape. It was the, the, <laughs> the crap escape because I got caught. But anyway, as I'm running and I've shaken off my pursuers, I'm running along the top of a wall. And on the left, I look down and there's two young women in niqab saying this way, this way, come to safety this way. And I look on the right of the wall and there's a fat guy. I think we can say that he was a fat guy. Uh, and he's on the right saying, come this way, come this way. Safety lies here. So I'm thinking, whose advice do I trust at this key juncture? The two young women in the cab or the fat guy? So I'm like, the women aren't going to lie to me. So I jump down on their side of the wall. And in no time, I'm recaptured and horribly beaten and shot. Um, but anyway, there's all sorts of unconscious bias going on there. But anyway, and I don't want any dramatic conclusions to be drawn no, because no. two young women in the niqab might next time as easily be giving me the route to, to safety but uh, anyway I was uh, there was definitely some unconscious bias going on there Absolutely. Uh, my, and, I, but, and despite the seriousness of of what happened yeah, next yeah, yeah. I'm glad yeah. I'm glad we can we can end on a, on an upward but, upward note no, no I one is to, suggesting for a minute yes you have exactly I want to try and answer your question uh, no one is suggesting for a minute that that um, any of us are experts at this idea of unconscious bias, you and me included. I'll tell you one thing that helps. Yes, I'll go tell ahead. One thing that helps as I reflect on, on positive lessons, it's not a total answer, but two things. I was I was raised by my mom and my mom was a nurse and she looked after people and she had a very compassionate side that was represented in her job and who she was. Now, that helps. That helps. That helps in trying to deal with people because I had an upbringing where uh, the importance of the weak and the vulnerable in our society were was illuminated. Now, I'm not a good person like my mom, but it, that, that kind of helps in the way I see people somehow, and I can't really explain it more than that. The other thing which I think... Uh, and I hope is a positive for people who are in the same situation as I was. I was bullied at school. I was not a cool and successful kid. I went to a school where you were recognized if you were brilliant sportsman or gifted academically. I was neither. I was not a klutz, but I was nothing in the eyes of the place I went to. Um, and I was bullied too. <clears throat> now, that helped. I didn't think it helped much at the time. I thought it was horrible. I would have done anything not to be there. But that helped because it meant that though I was in an institution, I had to recognize that I was outside of the institution. I had to recognize that I was outside of the group. I was not one of the gang. Now, that hurt a lot at the time. But in adulthood, particularly as a journalist, I recognized that though that was tough then, that was a gift in that it allowed me to think outside of the group. Not always, but often enough. It allowed me to be naturally suspicious of institution and to be challenging, not just in the other way that people 
that a group sees things unconsciously, but also in the way that I might immediately react to something unconsciously. It gave me an ability to second guess others and myself. It's not perfect. But I include that because for any kid who's been bullied or for any kid who's being bullied, it's it's horrible. I've been there. But you know what? There are some strengths which come out of it. Wow. That's a wonderful, wonderful life lesson. Um, and I'm sure many, many listeners would be very grateful to have heard that from you because uh, I, I'm sure there are many who have had similar experiences to you in that regard. What can I say? I am bereft of words. I have so enjoyed your stories. I'm sure the listeners have too. Um, there's a lot to reflect, a lot to think about. We all have unconscious biases. We will always continue to have unconscious biases. Let's see if we have the presence of mind to reflect, uh, to try and challenge them, to try and overcome them. That's pretty much any of us can do. Anthony Lloyd, thank you so very much for your time, your generosity of spirit and sharing your stories and your wonderful, wonderful narrative style of sharing these stories. Thank you. Smitha, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Stories of Unconscious Bias with me, Smitha Tharoor. Stay tuned for the next interview in a week's time. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter for updates on my episodes at Smitha Tharoor.